This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Patty Reagan, the founder of the Center for Great Apes, a 100-acre sanctuary in Wachula, Florida, that houses nearly 50 chimpanzees and orangutans. These animals have been rescued or retired from the entertainment industry, from research, or from the exotic pet trade. Reagan's history with great apes, orangutans in particular, dates back more than 30 years, when in 1984, she was volunteering on a rehabilitation project for those animals in the rainforest of Indonesian Borneo. We'll find out about the start of the Center for Great Apes, how some of the chimps and orangutans arrived there, what goes on at the center on any given day, and more when I speak with Patty Reagan in just a few moments here on Talking Animals. Later, I also spoke with Pam Backer, Director of Shelter Operations at the Humane Society of Tampa Bay, seeking guidance as Hurricane Irma bears down on us on how to prepare our animals and ourselves most effectively before the storm hits. Also, our fall fun drive starts in just about a month, but I have an opportunity for you to make an early pledge today to give me a head start on my fundraising and send you to see Arcade Fire performing September 22nd at the USF Sundome. Pledge of $120 and the tickets are yours. If you're interested, email me during the show at dj at wmnf.org and I'll get right back in touch with you as soon as the show is over. Right now though, let's get to Patty Reagan and the Center for Great Apes with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663 emailing dj at wmnf.org or texting 813-433-0885 This is Patty Reagan returning to Talking Animals. Good morning, Patty. Good morning, Duncan. Thank you so much for joining us again on Talking Animals. Well, thank you for inviting me. You bet. So you were a guest on the show about seven years or so ago. I think so, yeah. Yeah, but I'm guessing not everyone listening uh, now was listening then, and either way, at the risk of some redundancy, let's address a few basics at least. So when did you first become interested in apes? Oh, my goodness. I think the first was in 19, might have been 77, when... Coco, the um, gorilla from Gorilla Foundation, was on the cover of National Geographic with a camera, and you probably remember that cover. And reading that article was the first time that it really hit on me how sentient um, these animals are now, especially great apes. And we know so many animals like the dolphins and whales and elephants have such a high level of intelligence and the apes. And I think, you know, 30, 40 years ago, they were just interesting animals to look at at the zoo. But our, the collective consciousness of the public has been raised greatly to really understand more about these animals and their needs. That's absolutely true, and, and I think probably many of us would have been struck by that magazine, uh, that cover with Coco, 
But not everybody would somehow have that translate into going off into Indonesian Borneo and and a uh, rehab project. Tell us a little bit about that and how, you know, being struck, obviously, by that magazine cover kind of led to... Well, it led to becoming a volunteer at the new zoo in Miami that was opening in 1980. And I was a docent there for about 10 years, and then I was on their board of directors for another nine years. And that experience, through that experience, I heard about a group called Earthwatch, that many of your listeners probably know about. They send volunteers out into the field to help scientists with archaeology projects or oceanography projects, and in this case, studying orangutans. And I signed up in 1984 to do a three-week volunteer stint in Borneo, in the southern part, on an orangutan rehabilitation project with um, one of Louis Leakey's protégés, Dr. Brute Galdicus. And she has been studying orangutans in the wild, um, as Jane Goodall was studying chimpanzees and Diane Fossey was studying gorillas under his um, guidance. And while I was there, she said, oh, do you want to come back and help run the camp next year? And so I went back for four months as, as basically a um, logistics coordinator for the New Earth Watch teams coming in and just really developed such a strong appreciation for orangutans, for their very amazing nature. And people say they're solitary, and the males truly are um, solitary from other adult males or territorial, but they are social with other with females and with their offspring, and um, they just have a larger range. And it's interesting, Duncan. Thirty years ago, when I was over there, more than thirty years ago, we didn't even know what palm oil was. Mm-hmm. The threats to the rainforest were logging then. Um, today, palm oil has just about decimated their habitat. So it's it's a very sad situation for wildlife. But that situation of volunteering, um, I owned a little business in Miami while I was volunteering at the zoo, and I sold it in 1990. And because of my experience with orangutans in Borneo, someone who knew me from the board of directors at the zoo was a breeder dealer of great apes, of orangutans, chimps, and also lesser apes, gibbons, and um, other animals, other primates like that. And he asked me to take care of an infant orangutan for just a month or two. Um, And I thought the mother wasn't able to take care of it. And I was like, oh, how fun. It's been five years since I've been in Borneo. I'd love to give this baby care. And that was my awakening kind of. Um, You know, at that time, that was 27 years ago. He just turned 27. I did not think anything about it. I didn't know anything about the use of great apes as exotic pets or in the entertainment they were actually dressed um, when I volunteered at the tourist attraction in Miami where these were held, and it wasn't at the zoo where I was also volunteering. This was a privately owned tourist attraction. And nothing, uh, nothing seemed unusual to me because we were so used to seeing them on television shows and in circuses, entertainment. But um, when he was seven months old, he was to be sold to a circus trainer in New Jersey. And I had thought he was going to an accredited zoo. So that was a big shock for me. And just one thing after another, it's amazing sometimes when you don't plan things, how life just kind of unfolds. He um, was not sold. He had a health problem, and he was not sold. And the owner actually said, because I had cared for him through that health problem and called in a friend who was a pediatric neurologist, um, that he was mine. Well, I knew enough, being on the board and working in Borneo, that I was not going to own privately a great ape. So I started looking at zoos all across this country for a home for this little guy named Pongo. And the only problem was 
orangutans come from only two islands, Borneo and Sumatra, and they have different DNA. And in the 1930s and 40s, when they used to bring them into zoos out of the wild, they were not always sure where they came from because they might be shipped out of the Singapore port or Jakarta port, and it would be a group of babies that would go off. It wasn't until the 1980s they could do DNA testing and know that this was pure Bornean, pure Sumatran, or a hybrid mix. And the zoos collectively, and the, the accredited zoos in the United States at that time, decided to only produ- reproduce Bornean and Sumatran and not reproduce the hybrids. So what happened, and zoos would never do this today, but this is 30 years ago and 40 years ago, they outplaced a lot of their hybrids because they weren't going to breed them, and zoos need babies for public to come and see them. So they outplaced them to private pet owners, to, this, to somebody like the breeder in Miami, and to entertainment. And so there was no future for this one little baby I thought I could find a really good home for in an accredited zoo. And, of course, he could never go back to the wild because hand-raised captive great apes are not able to go back, and hybrids can't even come into the country in Indonesia anymore. So I thought, no problem, I'll start a sanctuary. And at that time, (laughs) I thought, this is easy. Um, I'll buy five acres. You know, I'll have a staff person. Well, (laughs) one thing, you know, grew, and he asked me to take care of a baby chimp, and then I realized chimps are even more in need of sanctuary care than um, there are many more out there in research and and entertainment and the pet trade and so forth. So I started this nonprofit 25 years ago next year, 93. So we're coming up on our 25th anniversary. And uh, from there, it took me a long time to find this property. We started with 15 acres, and we actually have 120 now. Oh, wow. And we have 25 staff, and we've taken care of over 60 great apes. The issues are, as adorable as they are, and people love them in their homes when they're not legal to have as pets in most states anymore. So that whole practice is disappearing, and most of the trainers have gone out of business of working them. But the problem is they're pulled from their mothers as tiny infants. And even though I participated at this tourist attraction in taking care of babies, I didn't realize how much it affects them not being raised by their own mothers. And so now here at the sanctuary, most of the apes have come to us have come out of entertainment where they can only work in maybe seven or eight years. And they nurse for five or six years in the wild, so they're still considered infants and juveniles. Once they hit that juvenile stage, they get too strong, too dangerous to be in people's homes, around neighbors and family, too dangerous to be in entertainment. And they live for 40, 50 years. So, you know, it's, it's a real conundrum for them. People love them as babies, but then they often get sent off to, in the old you know, years ago, 20, 30 years ago, they were sent to biomedical research. They they came out of circus. We've got two former circus chimps here that were wild-caught in Africa. He worked in the Ringling Brothers Circus for 10 and 12 years, sent to a very aggressive biomedical lab in New Mexico, and finally got out. But um, it's, it's a sad history, the way we've treated great apes. Well, I certainly want to find out more about uh, some of the, the residents there and some of the early years of the center. But one thing, uh, as you were describing your earlier adventures and experiences with orangutans, it, it occurred to me that they obviously constitute a key part of the citizenry at the Center for Great Apes. But generally, it seems like you tend not to hear as much about orangutans as, at least compared with chimpanzees or even gorillas. Why do you think that is? Um, 
Well, it's funny. I went to a conference in 1994 in California, University of California at Fullerton, and the title of the conference about orangutans was called The Neglected Ape. Mm. And so even orangutan um, zoo personnel and wildlife researchers realize they have the, the least amount of attention. Gorillas are the big, giant, amazing, beautiful animals that um, get a lot of attention. Chimpanzees, there are just so many of them used in so many venues. Yeah. I think... Orangutans in the 1920s and 30s were very hard to keep alive. They're very sensitive. When they came in out of the wild to zoos, they didn't live very long. Um, and I think that, you know, there are just not so many. They were used in biomedical research at one time, but the last lab holding orangutans really outplaced them to zoos in, like, the late 1980s. And, um, and But, of course, chimpanzees stayed in research to the tune of over 1,000, and they're coming out now. Um, so when I started this sanctuary, it was really about orangutans, but mm-hmm. there just weren't that many used in entertainment. There are still three held by a, an entertainer um, that still works them in commercials and live stage shows, but I think all of the rest are out now, and there's only one pet orangutan that I know of in the country uh, that's owned by a private owner. So people are realizing they need, you know, I wish we didn't have to have this sanctuary. Sure. We, we have, um, we're in a heavily wooded area. We do not have islands. We have very tall habitats that are three and four stories tall. Our longest one is 100 feet long and 42 feet tall. Um, but they can be very dangerous, both species, and as they get older. But they also are very, just their strength makes them impossible. We don't go in with the animals. Um, we don't, you know, have a lot of contact with them. We encourage them to live with each other. Yeah. And a lot of that is training them. To learn to live with their own species. Isn't that interesting that that's that that's what's required because of their earlier the human background? Yeah, they think yeah. they're little humans. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Patty Reagan, the founder of the Center for Great Apes, a sanctuary in Wachula, Florida, that houses nearly 50 chimpanzees and orangutans. If you'd like to ask Patty a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So even people don't follow the sanctuary world or animals as closely as some of us might know that there seems to be a number of of chimp sanctuaries across the country and certainly a handful just in Florida itself. But where else besides the Center for Great Apes houses orangutans? Well, we're actually the only orangutan, um, accredited orangutan sanctuary in North America that's accredited by the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries. There um, is another nonprofit in Florida, and they have a few orangutans. Um, I'm not sure what their status is right now. They're open to the public. And there are certain um, there are certain criteria for a sanctuary, and one is that while we do open for tours, for educational tours or privately scheduled tours, you're not open with a gate um, hours for the public just to come in and out whenever they want. Um, you don't breed. You don't buy and sell animals. It's, uh, you know, we're managing them here until they pass. We're basically infant care, elder care, hospice care, um, everything. This is, there's no place for them to go. Um, but there, when I was going to tell you, when I started this project in 93, there was only one sanctuary in all of the U.S. that had um, chimpanzees, and that was in Texas. And the rest were more of, a, of zoos, smaller family zoos and that type of thing. And today there are 10 chimpanzee sanctuaries in North America. 
And that is because um, many of them, all of them, are going to be coming out of labs with the Endangered Species Act that was passed two years ago. It now classifies captive chimpanzees as endangered as those in the wild. Right. So between that and a lot of researchers, even prior to that, saying, okay, we're not doing this anymore, there's, I guess, just been a huge number of chimps that needed homes somewhere. Yes, that's true. And and as pet owners realize, I mean, 20-some years ago, there were 20 breeders in the United States. Today, there may be one or two left. And so it is um, that they pull babies and sell them as pets for to trainers, yeah. Um, then I think that their business is probably ending soon. It, it's just a huge commitment for the rest of your life, and you know I realize these apes will live beyond me. So we have a board of directors of twelve people. We have a succession plan. We have a strategic plan. It, it takes. It really does take a village to do something like this. It's not a one-person effort. Yeah, well, like you say, I mean, when you get into life expectancies that are that long, you have to make plans knowing that all the friends that you have there now, uh, some of them at least, are going to be around for for decades still to come. We um, have 21 orangutans here, and 11 of them are males. And so males are solitary. And so that means we need 11 separate habitats for those guys. Wow. And um, so it's very expensive. And even, you know, their, their enclosures, each one of those enclosures, the night houses, we just spent almost half a million dollars on a night house for additional chimpanzees that has nine bedrooms. Um, we're building our first big open acre, open top yard for them this year because we just moved out into um, a field to the next of us that we acquired near us. And, you know, it's each outdoor habitat is about 300000 between one and 300000 depending on the size of the enclosure. So it's a hugely expensive project to do. And um, we, we do it because people care about these animals, and we get no government funding. It's just applying the grants for grants from foundations, and then individual memberships that support us at $50 a year mean the world to us because the more people that are aware and that help, the longer support we have in the future for these guys sure well with that in mind um patty let's go back a little bit to or, or more than a little bit in time describe i mean because obviously there's great and sprawling and and new structures and, and habitats but describe the first incarnation a little bit of the center what did it look like and uh, what animals were the first very first residents well it took me four years to find uh, this land in wachula first the first 15 acres and the, I had been volunteering at this tourist attraction in Miami um, with these babies, and actually five of them came out of there, and he agreed to let them come up with us. Um, they were The oldest one was seven, and that was the original baby that started the whole thing, Pongo, mm-hmm. and we moved up here 20 years ago. And so it was two domes, geodesic domes that were three stories tall, one for two orangutan boys. Pongo was seven, and Christopher was five. And then um, we had the other dome was Grub. Our first chimp was six, and another chimp, Kenya, five, and a little one, three. And those were the initial little ones that the owner said, yes, take them up. You can do them as part of the sanctuary. And um, I think, you know, the first one that we took in was an adult female named Toddy, and she was from the owner's breeding compound but had been left alone, um, not in a big group because the adults were beating her up. And she was actually the mother of one of the infants that we brought up. So we brought her back and introduced her to Kenya. And she lived here for 19 years. We lost her this summer 
Uh, mm. to her, she was in her late 40s, which is elder, quite elderly for a chimp, although they can live longer, but she had a lot of issues from um, early years. She was a wild-caught chimp. She had bullet fragments in her head from when her mother was shot and caught, uh, shot and captured in Africa. Lots of the infants pick up the shrapnel. Mm. She was sold as a pet in Naples for about six or seven years, and when they realized they could not handle her in her house, she went to a pet owner, a, a pet shop, rather, in Miami. She was at the Monkey Jungle for a short time. She went up to Ocala to a horse farm, and then she went back to this breeding compound where six of her babies were pulled. And the last one was the one that was brought to the tourist attraction that I took care of, not knowing any of the mother's history. Just, oh, yeah, another baby, how fun. You know, I had a lot to learn about this. And, and I mean, I... Some people may say, oh, you're a hypocrite because you raised these babies and you volunteered to take care of them, and I did. But I committed the rest of my life and all my money to make sure their future is secure. And um, it's, and you change. You realize what the real needs of these animals are, and it's not being raised by me and by a human. But the nice thing was that we were able to take Toddy, put her back in with her last infant, who was five years old at the time, and she lived in that group her whole life. So... You know, that was those were our first guys. Yeah. And it's, you know, as you describe this, you talk about the shrapnel, but also just the trauma, the multiple traumas, actually, in this case, I guess, and maybe that's not uncommon, that they endure, whether, again, there while her mom is shot and so close that she's got shrapnel, but, again, either way, torn away from her mom, which is not uncommon, unfortunately. But then all these other traumas on the heels of that, and you just think, oh, my God, I mean, these animals just that they can function at all, given all those uh, traumas. I think I feel the worst sometimes. I mean, the infants certainly are very impacted, but I feel so badly for the mothers yeah. that uh, that are bred and pulled, the babies are pulled. And maybe, I don't know, I just I just think it's... And some, some of those mothers cannot raise their babies, and that's always the excuse that, well, they're not a good mother. Well, they're not a good mother usually because they were hand-raised by people too. And chimps in the wild have a birth interval of every five or six years orangutans about every seven or eight years. So they nurse for five years or so, and then they stay with their mothers for another year or two or three and learn how to take care of the next sibling. And that's how they become good mothers. They're not like dogs and cats that just instinctively know how to take care of their offspring. So you mentioned that uh, after those first few residents of the first incarnation of the center that you you know, we're learning along the way. What, what were some of the biggest lessons you learned in those very earliest years of the sanctuary, whether it's just generally how to care for them or feeding or other things? I mean, obviously you'd had experience in the wild and you'd looked after some of these as a prelude to opening this center, but still it sounds like there was a, more than a little bit of a learning curve well, along the way. Um, there was, but I had the, the background and the fortune to have volunteered for many years and been on the board of directors at Metro Zoo in Miami, which is now called Zoo Miami. And so I um, knew a lot of zoo people. I used to go to the conferences. I immediately, when I started the nonprofit, I had um, the zookeeper from the National Zoo that had raised many babies and taken care of adult orangutans at the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. She was on our advisory board from year one. And um, interesting thing is she worked there 32 years and retired 10 years ago and moved down and brought property down the road from us so she can still volunteer with our orangutan. Well, that's but great. We had a lot of zoo um, input, and then the vet when I moved up here was a vet that had already worked with 
um, great apes, orangutans, and chimpanzees for at least 15 years at an accredited AZA zoo, and he is still our vet 20 years later. Wow. And my animal care manager here has worked in the zoo industry just with great apes, especially orangutans, for 30 years, more than 30 years. So we have um, about 150 years of cumulative experience here. Yeah. And But I started it off with people um, that hired people that had worked in zoos, and, you know, the we... We started it off with people that had experience. We've spoken to so many people over the years on the show that have started sanctuaries of one kind or another. And I'm really struck by, uh, even though I knew some of this before as I listened to some of it again just now, that you really knew from the get-go. I mean, it's one thing to have experience caring for uh, the orangutans in, in the wild, and then the, your whole experience was what became Zoo Miami. But it seems like you also just instinctively or otherwise knew that there was sort of a infrastructure and that you did need, even from the very beginning, other people, and whether it's the advisory board or recruiting other people, not just obviously a vet, but it sounds like you really knew, hey, for this thing to, 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 to really sustain and be able to serve the purpose I'm going for here, I'm going to need early on other people that have complementary skills and, and talents to make make this go over time and not, not hit a, a rough patch or not fall apart, which unfortunately does happen with a lot of sanctuary stories. Um, well, it's true, and I think having owning a business in Miami and running the business helps me a lot from the, the business end of it because very often it's just all about the animals, but you have to manage the business too. And on our, our board of directors, I've got a couple attorneys. Um, we've got major donors on it. We've got animal people in the zoo world but and friends. Um, but on our advisory board, we have a number of vets, and then we also have a communications person. Um, a public relations person and the communications director at Miami Zoo, Ron McGill, is on our advisory board. And we have an employment law attorney that helps us with uh, managing staff. And we have a horticulturalist because we have a tremendous amount of trees and um, other exotic plants here at the sanctuary. So it's it's trying to bring in everybody that has a specialty here because I can't know everything and I certainly don't. But what I did come out of this, into this project what with was um, a really appreciation and understanding for the nature of the orangutan, which is very different than the nature of the chimpanzee. And I think, um, you know, chimpanzees are, were used more in Hollywood because chimps live in large communities and groups in Africa. So, and they have great big ears, think about that, and they have many, many vocalizations, so they're constantly talking to each other. They're telling about dangers, they're telling about food, they're... They're soliciting, you know, sex. They're just doing everything verbally, and and they pay a lot of attention. They look at each other, and they answer. Orangutans are more, because they're huge, they're the largest arboreal or tree-living mammal in the world. And so they, one fruiting tree, a big male could decimate that, and if a group went in, you know, there wouldn't be enough food. So they are dispersed over the rainforest. And they have little tiny ears and a few vocalizations, not a, not as many as chimps. And they are very happy on their own, just doing their own thing, where a chimpanzee left alone gets very neurotic. They need companionship. So I think that a lot of people, for instance, in the entertainment business, like working with chimps because the chimps pay attention. Mm. What do you want me to do? What is the next thing I can do? And, and they give back a lot of feedback to each other. Orangutans are over here looking at a butterfly way over there when they're, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's just different nature. And I love that nature of the orangutans. And I love chimps 
a gregariousness too, but um, that was one thing I felt was a great benefit was really knowing more about orangutans from my volunteer work in Borneo. And it sounds like from early on and even now as you kind of des- describe them sort of poetically, that orangutans really do have your heart. I, You know, I really love them both. Yeah. Uh, orangutans are just the most amazing animals, but I think chimps are too. And um, people ask me, who's your favorite orang- Who's your favorite ape here? Because they always think it's going to be the first one, Pongo. Mm-hmm. And my answer is, whoever I'm with at the moment is my favorite. But there is a bond with the original ones that I can't deny. Um, but, yeah, they're all just amazing, and they're all so different, and they all have different personalities, and it's just really something. And so, Patty, like, talk about some of the various ways, you've sort of alluded to some already, but the various ways that the chimps and the orangutans end up there. Um, usually, well, from the pet trade, it, most of the ones that have come out of homes, people have called us, and they are panicky because they realize that their animals... Um, are dangerous. They're trying to break out of their enclosure. Um, in one case, about 12 years ago, there were two orangutans and a, a big adult male chimpanzee in a basement garage in New Jersey, and they had been in tiny little cages pretty much in the dark most of their adult life. The, the one orangutan was 20, and the chimp was 20, and the other orangutan, a 300-pound male, was 16. And somehow... I had been begging that owner for years to let them come down and have more space and participate with us, you know, come and visit us and so forth, but um, didn't want to let them go. And then the, the orangutan, Linus, started tearing up the floor of his cage, and he was on legs, so he actually just pulled up the wire and was coming out from underneath it. And she panicked, and she called me late one night, come get them, come get them all. So I was on the, it was Mother's Day weekend in 2006, and I was on the phone trying to find transporters. Um, she called a vet up there. We we got ready, and we picked up um, all three of those guys and brought them down here. So they, they've been here. Linus is 27 now, and he's just a hugely beautiful male. But he was in horrific condition when he got to us. Um, same thing with a 45-year-old chimpanzee that had been in an Ohio, Dayton, Ohio garage for 45 years, a male that was captured in Africa, but they get attacked. People get attached to them, and even though they can't give them the space or the this this chimp was in horrific condition too, mm. bed sores all over his body, emaciated, um, fingernails were three inches long, and he was I didn't think he'd last two or three months. Um, but he lived with us for five years, and he had a good last five years, and died when he was about fifty. And so you know, it's those are the exotic pet situations with yeah. entertainment um some of the trainers have just decided we 13 years ago we took uh 16 chimpanzees and six orangutans from the largest trainer in hollywood that used great apes and he the animal welfare community was on his heels he was concerned about he felt he could never leave his property because he had a lot of adults there he also had a lot of babies that were working babies and he wanted out of the business and we did take them with the help of a foundation that helped us build and prepare for them. Mm. And um, they, the youngest one came when he was six weeks old. He just had been born in California, and he will be 13 in January. So we're almost wow. 13. But Bubbles was in that group, Michael Jackson's chimp, and he came with us at that time, too. So he's 34 now. He's a big boy. Yeah, in fact, I was going to ask if you're uh, a bit tired of, of being asked about Bubbles, or does that not... You do not really get asked about bubbles so much just because there's so much time has really passed since. Um, <laughs> no, you know, we his... are asked all the time. Are you still? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, 
He's, and, you know, there was a lot of attention when Michael Jackson passed away, and Bubbles had already been here four or five years at that point. But um, he's the dominant male in the group of seven chimps. His best friend is Ripley. He's got the kids in the group and a couple, several adult females, and he's had to learn more about being a chimp. Um, but he does really he does really well here. Oh, and we're great. very grateful now because um, Michael Jackson's estate is finally paying for the care, his, his annual care, so they're helping us a great deal with that. And we're, they've always helped us along the way, but now they're paying the full care. So that helps. That's great. So it was just what tied up in, in some, some of the whole legal wrangling over yeah, the estate? So. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Again, this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Patty Reagan, the founder of the Center for Great Apes, the Sanctuary in Wachula, Florida, where upwards of 50 chimps and orangutans live. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. We have gotten a few texts in. One, I'm sure you would uh, agree with Patty, says no matter how cute they are how willing they are to do things for you they do not belong in the entertainment business i doubt you'll uh, do anything but second that patty yes oh okay i'm yeah. sorry okay. were you asking me the question no no yeah. i was reading a reading oh. a text and just seeing if you had any uh, oh I mean, absolutely was, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and it's you know it, we we grew up i mean we have bobby barasini's orangutan poppy here and i grew up seeing him on the ed sullivan show thinking that that was that was the most clever act, and he worked that orangutan in the Clint Eastwood movie. With um, he, she did not play the part of Clyde, but she played his girlfriend in one of the movies. She was worked in Las Vegas for twenty years. But undercover videos from the dancers in the show showed very abusive treatment of those orangutans, and that's what we didn't realize. We thought, oh my gosh, they love to perform, they love to be on stage, but they're strong. And they have a very definite mind of their own, and they have to be controlled. And that's the problem, whether it's shock collars or, um, you know, whatever it is. The trainers today, the, the more recent trainers that have gone to positive reinforcement operant conditioning, don't do that anymore. And I know many trainers in Hollywood that have worked with some of the animals that we have, and they love them very much. But the still issue of being pulled from the mother and then the they only work them for a few years, and where do they go? If accredited zoos don't take these animals usually that were raised by people, where do they go? And they can't go back to the wild. So that's what sanctuary uh, sanctuaries today try to do is just provide them with a life end that has dignity and compassion and good food and all of that. Well, and also, as you noted earlier, to qualify as a legitimate sanctuary, there are certain things, and like you said, it's not open to the public, although there are occasions that people can visit a sanctuary. We have two open houses a year in March and December, because we know our members want to see what they're supporting, and we do that. Right, and I think there's also an event coming up later this month, Afternoon with the Apes. What what happens Um, at Something we just started by appointment. We do it once a month, although we didn't do it in the summer. We'll do it once a month through the um, winter, where we'll, it's limited to 25 people, and it's about a two-hour walking tour. And um, that is the only time that we allow visits that aren't school groups or member private tours. I see. Okay, cool. All right, let's take a call. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Patty Reagan. Yes, uh, <clears throat> uh, I didn't catch most of the program, but are there are there no new laws, or is there no way to control people in New Jersey having orangutans in their basement? Can we um, just not, is it just yeah. greed involved, it's total greed or what? I think, I think it's um, a complex that's maybe 
a bit like a hoarder complex where you get so attached to them that you just can't give them up even though you know that they would go to a better situation. The interesting thing about that is during that time, someone else that was very uh, upset about those orangutans and chimp in the basement called the New Jersey Fish and Wildlife, and they said, no, it's absolutely illegal. No one is grandfathered in and to have them. And then when that person called back, they said, oh, yes, well, that person is okay. So we're not sure what happened there. But today there are no great apes left in New Jersey. And there are well, but I laws. mean, is there no way to stop them from getting them in the first place? I mean, it's just, it's, it's got to be, you know, difficult. But can't well, we just stop this from happening? It's unbelievable. It, are there it people, is. You know, people in Miami have lions in their living room, that kind of thing. Well, there's, it's all, most of it is governed by state law, although there are federal laws like the Captive Primate Safety Act. You cannot sell a primate across state lines anymore. Um, there are laws that are being changed now, and a lot of our situations here resulted from 10 and 20 years ago when people were much more able to buy pets and keep right. them in their homes. Um, so, yeah, but there's still some, I mean, there are states that have never allowed great apes as pets or even primates as pets. But there's still many states, um, Missouri, for instance, where the breeding wow. is allowed and selling is allowed there. And Missouri is pretty much a lost cause as far as I'm concerned well, in general. Missouri it it isn't, though, and that's what I tell my young staff when they are like, oh, my gosh, there's, you know, there's still three orangutans in entertainment and three chimps we see um, on TV. Yes, but 20 years ago there were 50 chimps and there were... 25 orangutans in entertainment, and it does change. It is changing. Public awareness is changing it. Um, the trainer in California that is still working a chimp and probably the last one in California um, said to me last year, I know that the business is about done. You know, he knows, and he's not going to get another baby chimp. So I think we are seeing the end of it. What we're concerned with is the sanctuary. We need to provide care for these guys now for their future. And while we still advocate for law changes and the end of the exotic pet trade. Thank you so much for your call. I appreciate sure. the questions you. you raised. And Patty, I guess you know what goes with that is that some states really vary a lot in what they allow and don't allow when it comes to to chimps and, and other animals, for that matter. And then there's um, the sep- separate issue of enforcement, which can vary a lot just given the resources that a given state has and, and just what the priorities are. So even if the law is in place, sometimes that gets skirted at least for a while. And that's absolutely right. So, Patty, we're sort of at the home stretch of our time. We've got a couple other callers and, and texts, but I want to be sure, just because right now, at least for Floridians and others, Irma is on everybody's mind. So tell me a little bit about what kind of hurricane prep goes on at the Center for Great Apes or is going on probably uh, right cur- now, currently. Right now. We've been doing it since last Saturday. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Um, the night houses where every ape lives are built very, very strong because of the great ape strength. And so they're concrete blocks, steel rebar in every cell, poured solid with a 12-inch concrete uh, slab roof. And so the trees fell on it. We went through Charlie with our apes and then Francis and then Jean, all in four weeks. Mm. Charlie hit us as a cat four. Um, trees will go down, we know that, but the apes are safe in these night houses, and our staff will go into every night house. We have 10 or 11 night houses right now on grounds, and anywhere from two rooms to nine rooms. We will stay in there with coolers full of all their food and their medications and enrichment toys and our food and until it's safe to come out. So they will be safe. We're not in a flood zone, um, although we, we have flooded a foot or two, and we expect that. 
But um, we're just boarding up all the human houses right now, getting supplies ready for the apes. We started buying water last week and um, several hundred gallons. <laughs> you know, yeah. we have to, every ape needs a, a gallon of water a day, too, plus all the staff that's staying on ground with them. Sounds like quite an undertaking, but I guess uh, it sounds like you've got more than a little experience from some of those previous hurricanes. In fact, uh, it's just... Well, we do, and I'm grateful for that. I also went through Andrew in Miami with, with Pongo when he was two and Grub when he was one. So <laughs> this is his fifth or sixth hurricane. Um, and we'll be posting on our Facebook page, the Center for Great Apes Facebook page, about um, our progress after the storm, if we can do it, yeah. and on our website, which is centerforgreatapes.org. And so if you people want to follow our progress, I'm hoping that we can get communication out. Great. All right. Well, uh, I'm sorry we've got a couple other callers that we didn't get to and a couple other texts, but uh, I think we have reached the end of our time. We've been speaking with Patty Reagan, again, the founder of the Center for Great Apes. It's in Wachula, Florida. And uh, she noted the centerforgreatapes.org is the website, and you can just uh, find them on Facebook as well. So, Patty, thanks for all your great work. Thanks for joining us in Talking Animals, and good luck uh, weathering Irma in these next few days. Thank you so much, and stay safe to all, all your listeners, too. All right. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. In a few moments, I'll speak with Pam Backer from the Humane Society of Tampa Bay, who offer information and guidance about how to prepare our animals and ourselves as Hurricane Irma does bear down on us. Right now, it's time to step into the comedy corner with a piece inspired, you might say, by my conversation with Patty Reagan, making her debut in the comedy corner. This is Jen Grant with a portion of a piece called Pet Shimp in today's comedy corner. I'm talking animals. Then I heard about this other woman who had uh, a pet chimp. Did you hear about that? Where it attacked her friend? Did you hear about it? It was, it was a really sad story, but I have a joke about it. So, um, <laughs> so this woman, I know a lot about the story because it happened in Connecticut, and I actually worked there at a comedy club. This woman in the audience told me a lot about it. So, this woman owned a pet chimp, which doesn't sound healthy to begin with. It's probably not a good idea to start off, like just in your living room. That's weird. Then, this is true, the chimp was on Xanax. The prescription drug, is that even a real situation happening on Earth? Like, (laughs) hi, I have a pet chimp on Xanax, pardon? Are you sure? (laughs) So this is what happened, okay, this is what happened. So the chimp got out of its cage and he freaked out because he didn't recognize its owner because she got a haircut. I think that's funny, actually. Because what a terrible way to find out your makeover worked, you know? (laughs) Oh, I really do look different. (laughs) Rip. And... (laughs) Don't worry, she's not here. Um... You gotta think, why would a woman want a pet chimp? But women are always complaining that their husbands don't know if they got their hair done. This chimp was like, you got your hair done, ah! she called her friend to get the friend to help get the chimp back in the cage and the friend actually went over would you ever go over no way right how are you qualified that's ridiculous what's that your pet chimp on Xanax is freaking out okay I'll be right there let me just google what to do there's no google for that actually well there probably is at this point so anyway, I think she's too good of a friend. That's too much to ask from a friend, right? Like, I can't even pick up my friends from the airport. What's this woman thinking? 
Hello, Rachel. Yeah, my pet cobra's escapes in the tool shed. The lights are burnt out. You're going to have to feel around for it. <laughs> yeah, I should mention it's on Oxycontin. <laughs> yeah, I didn't recognize me. I got my eyebrows waxed. <laughs> okay, we'll see you in five. That was Jen Grant with a portion of a piece called Pet Shimp, taken from her album, Nobody Likes Your Homemade Wine. A reminder first that I have a pair of tickets available for a pledge to see Arcade Fire September 22nd at the USF Sundome. The pledge price is $120, so you can help me, help Talk Animals, help WMNF, and help yourself by going to an awesome concert. If you're interested, email dj at wmnf.org, and I'll get back and touch with you right after the show. Now, though, on to my conversation with Pam Backer of the Humane Society of Tampa Bay to highlight important ways to prepare our animals and ourselves for a hurricane as uh, Irma looms ever larger. Let's uh, welcome Pam Backer to Talking Animals. Good morning, Pam. Good morning. Thank you so much for making the time to join us on Talking Animals. Oh, my pleasure. So let's jump right in. For those who are staying put and hunkering down in their homes, Uh, with their animals, uh, what are the most important things to know and to do? Well, I would say um, number one is going to be food and water. You know, you want to make sure you've got a supply of food and water for your pets for at least a week, um, a week to two weeks. You know, you just never can tell um, how long these things are going to last. Second to that is going to be your uh, medications that the animal may be on, making sure that you have, have them. You have them in airtight, uh, you know, Ziploc baggies, and if you can double and triple Ziploc them and put them in something airtight to keep them safe, um, do that as well. And um, right there at the top of the list is also uh, proper identification for your pet, which includes um, a microchip, uh, a collar, and that you can put the microchip tag on. Um, If your pet is old enough for a rabies vaccination, the rabies tag on the collar as well. And just in case um, those tags accidentally come off the collar, we recommend that you take a permanent Sharpie or a permanent pen and write your name and contact information on the inside of the pet's collar. Usually the collar will stay on. Sometimes the the tags kind of can fall off, you know, if they get hooked on something. Yeah, so you want to double up in case that were to happen. Yeah, yeah, can't can't do too much. There may be others in that scenario. Otherwise, a more complicated scenario emerges for those who do evacuate. And I think we learned a lot about these very issues from the Katrina experience, including some new laws that were passed to help deal with this. But what shelters in the area do you know of, people shelters, that do allow animals to come with them? In in our county, there are four um, four shelters. They're, um, they're middle schools. They are Burnett Middle School, Sergeant Smith Middle School, Bartles Middle School, and Shields Middle School. And is that uh, information, and, and more specifically, where they're located on the Humane Society Tampa Bay website or, or Facebook yes. page? Or okay, it, Great. You, yes, we have that information on our website. You can also find it at the Hillsborough County um, um, disa- Pet Disaster Planning website. Okay, great. So those four places you can go if you need to evacuate your home. You can bring your animals, and as long as you, of course, bring all the stuff that you just outlined that they would need, whether they're staying put or otherwise. Correct. Now, if they're if they're eva- if you're evacuating and you're going to be going to those schools, you want to make sure that your pets 
or have current vaccination uh, records um, to bring along with them. And um, they obviously the dogs need to be on a you know collar and a leash. Cats need to be in a carrier. Um, if you can place your dogs in a carrier or a crate, you should because. I mean, if everybody just thinks about it for just a second, no one's going to allow them to be wandering free. You know, you, you must be responsible for your own pet. So best that you have a place to contain them. Sure. And by the way, we should say that the website is humanesocietytampa.org yes. to, uh, to find this and other information that we're discussing. So what are some options? Let's say someone has to evacuate and for one reason or another maybe can't get to one of those four middle schools. Are there places to temporarily leave their animals if they have to evacuate they can't bring the animals and they they're sort of stuck in that place at least on a temporary basis is there some remedy for those people not um not really i mean that's where you rely on your family and your friends um because boarding kennels uh veterinarian offices um you know places that do lodging are typically evacuating themselves you know that they're not taking in more more animals um because that's that's more animals than that than there's no way to really know if you're going to be able to reunite those animals with their owners. Right. So that's where preparing uh, for these disasters in our beautiful state comes in to play. If you're you know as a pet owner, it's just your responsibility to make sure you've got things um, in order to. Uh, to take care of disasters like this that are, are threatening. Right. And I guess that's what this time is about for uh, preparing in all those ways and making sure that, for example, that there would be space at one of those middle schools if that's where you're going to go. I mean, I don't know how they, at a certain point, they probably hit capacity too. So all the more to, to really plan and, and sort that out as much in advance as possible. Now, what happens, that, what you just said about places that themselves will be busy and full, what happens at the Humane Society Tampa Bay itself? Do you and others settle in during the storm to look after the animals there? How does that work? Well, every shelter um, operates independently and, you know, we're not, we don't all do the same thing, so I can only really speak for ours. And for us, um, our plans are to stay in place if there is, uh, up to, right here at, on site, if there's um, up to a Category 2 storm. Um, category 3, we would move our shelter animals uh, a block over to our animal health center, which is a newer um, better designed building and can um, withstand higher winds. Uh, anything beyond that, we will evacuate depending on the uh, direction of the storm. I see. Well, again, lots of uh, decision-making and planning, no matter what you are, what your animal situation is, what your own personal or professional situation is. So, again, the watchword yes. comes and down to, to preparing, preparing, preparing. So It really does. And I want to mention that um, most shelters are not, taking in new animals right yeah, now. We, yeah. we stopped taking in animals. I mean, there's a, there comes a point where you, you're ineffective if you can't, if you have more animals than you can take care of in a, in a disaster situation. So, yeah. um, okay, yes, Pam. I, I wish everybody the best and I, I hope it, everyone's ready and, uh, and we, everybody's going to be safe. All right. Well, Pam, thank you so much for your, for making the time. This has been Pam Backer of the Humane Society of Tampa Bay. Again, humanesocietytampabay.org for more information and good luck. And we'll hope everybody uh, stays safe and all our animals are in good shape. And uh, thank you again for all your help today. My pleasure. And thank you for the invite. You bet. Bye-bye. All right, we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Rob Loria is up next with Radioactivity. Perhaps more than ever, we should point out that it's very important to kind of 
animals, be kind to others, be kind to yourself, be smart, be prepared, stay safe. See you next week.